I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. After the bravado, you're left with the anguish, end quote. Colonel Nadal, U.S. 1st Battalion, 7th Cavalry Regiment, Air Mobile. Few battles have shaped the modern American mind while remaining mostly anonymous to the general public, quite like Aya Drang. An iconic engagement that defined not just a war, but a generation has gone for the most part pretty much forgotten. Maybe one of the most misunderstood battles in a completely misunderstood war, Iodrang had a considerate impact on modern American history, and most people couldn't tell you what it is. The action of Iodrang Valley fought from the 14th to the 17th in November 1965 remains maybe the defining moment of the Vietnam War. Hello again, and thank you for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen, and today we have a pretty harrowing tale coming to you from 55 years ago this week. Uh, But before we get down to the nitty-gritty, I want to say thank you and welcome to our newest Patreon producer, Gary. Uh, Thank you very much for joining. And also, I want to give a very heartfelt thank you to all the patrons on Patreon for hanging in through the kind of turbulent COVID times. I really do appreciate it. And again, your contributions all go towards keeping the uh, the lights on with this little operation. Uh, I hope that you guys really enjoyed the interview with Matt from the Armorer's Bench uh, on the kind of the rough start to life of the M16 and the other small arms used in Aya Drang in Vietnam. Uh, it was a lot of fun to record. He's a, a real treasure trove, a wealth of information on weapons info. So if you like that kind of stuff, definitely seek him out. It's the Armorer's Bench on social media and on YouTube. Uh, some great stuff there. Also, please find my stuff on social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I'm not huge on Facebook, but I have a pretty good presence on Instagram, and I'm trying to grow the Twitter. So if you're out on those things, check us out. Uh, We've got maps, images, artwork. I go live every now and then. I'm trying to find a more regular uh, calendar for that, but every now and then we do something on there. So check that out if you uh, uh, are interested in seeing any of the visuals that go along with the stories we tell. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you are listening to this if you can. Now, that's enough of the housekeeping. Let's get stuck in. Pre-Second World War life in French Indochina, a region that encompasses modern Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and parts of southern China, was one of extremes. The extremely wealthy and extremely poor, the weak and the mighty, the Asian and the European. 
When the Japanese came in the early 1940s, some thought there might be freedom from the hated French rule. When Vichy France allied with the Nazis, the Japanese continued to occupy the area under the auspices of protecting their friend and allies' domain. In reality, they had conquered the French colony, but allowed the French to administer the region, and that way they avoided losing the men and material that it would take to garrison the region. As the Second World War developed, the Japanese realized they needed to take a little bit more active role in running French Indochina. They expelled the French administrators and folded Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia into their sham Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. As the Japanese home islands starved under the constant bombing of the Allied planes, this official embrace by Tokyo equated to mass murder. They scoured the conquered nations for food, and Vietnam was chief among them. By 1945, maybe as many as a million Vietnamese had starved. Given their recent experience of colonial control and starvation and death, it's no wonder that the Vietnamese hardened themselves to privation and violence. After the war, trying to reestablish some kind of global status quo and against the adamant wishes of a now-dead FDR, the U.S. and U.K. and even the USSR backed France regaining colonial control over the Indochina region. A thin waif of a man with a goat-like beard was incensed and took direct action to keep his country from becoming a European colony once again. In late 1945, the scholarly Ho Chi Minh declared the independence of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. The next 30 years were spent fighting for freedom, albeit for a version of freedom under a communist government and with aid from both the Soviets and Red China. In 1954, the decisive victory over the French colonials at Dien Bien Phu put Ho and Vietnam on a fixed path. At the Geneva Accords, Vietnam was split at the 17th parallel, an official demilitarized zone. It was now two countries. A few years after the split, the hope was that the free elections that would be imposed would be held and held fairly, and that the decision on how Vietnam would move forward as one country would be left to the people. George Kennan, Ike Eisenhower, the Soviets, and Mao were having none of it. The rapidly warming Cold War was in the offing, and both sides saw a chance to prove their ideology was right and worthy. The South Vietnamese, with American money and material, began a long, drawn-out death rattle. The North Vietnamese, bolstered by Beijing and Moscow's official recognition, dug in and readied itself for another long, bloody fight with some white men from far away. Ike was smart enough to know that sending American boys off to fight in another Asian proxy war like Korea was a bad deal and worse politics. Instead, he sent tens of millions of dollars in material, and most importantly, he sent advisors, observers, and special forces units to, quote, help the South Vietnamese. JFK wanted to stay strong in the Southeast Asian operational sphere, and he poured even more money and men into the fighting. LBJ inherited a war that was not a war and had no idea what to do. He was loath to antagonize the Soviets or the Chinese, and yet still he fully understood that the taxpayers 
were watering weeds unless the U.S. military's power could be utilized to deliver a quick, strong victory. The South Vietnamese leadership was riddled with weak, greedy, corrupt tyrants. Countless coups, failed coups, backdoor dealings, and general underhandedness made it clear to U.S. leadership, which, by the way, instigated many of those coups, failed coups, backdoor dealings, and general underhandedness. Uh, anyhow, U.S. leadership believed that they would have to win this war on behalf of, and often despite, their ally. Operation Rolling Thunder was meant to break the back of the Viet Cong using the U.S. Air Force. The Viet Cong were North Vietnam's insurgent militia, guerrilla force essentially, and it traveled south into South Vietnam, infiltrating the country using the infamous Ho Chi Minh Trail through Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. In a bleak bit of foreshadowing, the U.S. believed it could just bomb this enemy into submission without realizing that you had to hit them, A, and convince them they were beaten, B. Like the Romans of ancient times, the North Vietnamese realized you weren't beaten until you acknowledged that fact. Ho had created a network of fanatics. They would die before they admitted defeat. And the Ho Chi Minh Trail, well, it did the same thing. It was bombed, cut, blown up, burned out, but never truly destroyed. With uncanny speed and ability, the Viet Cong time and again repaired the trail. The Special Forces teams that were sent in-country by the U.S. took a different tact in trying to stop the insurgent movement from North Vietnam into South Vietnam. First and foremost, they tried to find and either destroy or hamper the enemy operations. Seeing that this was a futile uh, effort, they also committed to counterinsurgency efforts, and they trained local villagers and tribal militias, they built more infrastructure, roads and schools, and then they went on general goodwill missions, building wells and whatnot. These Green Beret units hoped to build enough local goodwill and enough local force to allow the South Vietnamese to eventually, hopefully, someday fend for themselves. One of these Green Beret bases was in a remote place called Ply May, outside of Ply Ku, a provincial capital city in central Vietnam. North Vietnamese General Chu Hu Man was the commander of the Western Field Front HQ B3. He'd lobbied hard throughout 1965 for the NVA to take the war to the south in a more traditional fashion. He wanted to cut South Vietnam in half at its gut, the central highlands of the Kantum, Pleiku, Binh Dinh, and Phu Bon provinces. Halfway between the northern cities of Hue and Da Nang and in the south, Saigon, the region is covered in scattered mountain clusters, forest, triple canopy jungle, plateaus, and ridges, all surrounded by the high peaks of the South Annamite Range. If Hugh Man and his three regular NVA or PAVN regiments, the 32nd, 33rd, and 66th, could get a foothold in the region, South Vietnam's government might waver. Man's plan to use conventional units and fight a traditional campaign had come under withering criticism from the hero of Dien Bien Phu and Ho's best commander, Vo Nguyen Giap, the Red Napoleon.
He called for a continuation of the hit-and-run, ambush- and raid-style warfare that he had perfected and worked so well against the Japanese and the French. Possibly sensing weakness in the ARVN or the South Vietnamese, or maybe in the hopes that a bold stroke could bring the enemy to his knees faster, Ho Chi Minh overruled Giap, and the decision to go for broke in the Central Highlands was approved. General Mann planned to move his units down the Ho Chi Minh Trail and from Chupong Mountain enter South Vietnam. Chupong Masif is a whopping 174 square mile, 1600 foot high Masif that terminates miles into Cambodia, a no-go zone for the Americans. From this protected and defensible entry point, General Mann intended to strike out at several nearby objectives. First, he planned to destroy the Special Forces bases at Ply May, Dak Sut, and Duk Ko. Then he would hit the provincial government HQ at Li Tan and capture the city of Ply Ku, only a little over 30 miles away. All these small moves were meant to pull the ARVN forces in the area out into the open where Mann was confident his regular soldiers would be able to ambush and destroy them, regardless of American support. Mid-October saw two things bring the U.S. and the North Vietnamese ever closer to a head-to-head -head fight. The 1st Cavalry Division made its new headquarters base in the city of An Khe and General Mann of the North Vietnamese kicked off his conventional campaign by attacking the Special Forces camp at Ply May. The 1st Cavalry Division was old hat in the helicopter game, but in 1965 she'd had a total makeover into something new, an air mobile strike force. What General Westmoreland, the commander in Vietnam, would go on to call, quote, the most innovative tactical development to emerge from the Vietnam War, end quote. At Aya Drang, the concept, Air Mobile, was debuted and put to a rigorous field test. Helicopters had been in use to a minimal degree at the end of World War II. Their role expanded in Korea, but continued to be mostly supply, evac, and transport in nature. By 1965, military minds in the U.S. had entirely reimagined the helicopter's role on the battlefield. The results were stunning, transformative, and produced a tactical revolution. The 1st Cavalry was now going to play the part of modern-day dragoons, using their speed and mobility to deliver infantry and firepower almost anywhere on the battlefield, seemingly at will. This allowed planners to think in terms of vertical movement on the battlefield. Now the fight could be traditional, horizontal, and 2D, or vertical, 3D, and maybe even a combination of the two. Warfare would never be the same. One of the most striking aspects of this new air mobile division, beyond its ability to seemingly materialize anywhere on the battlefield, was its degree of specialization. For reconnaissance, there was the huge 6A Cayuse Loach fast, nimble little aircraft with a range of almost 400 miles. For attack, there was the Bell Huey Cobra gunship that packed a real punch. It was armed with a 7.62 minigun, 40mm grenade launcher, or 20 or 30mm cannon, and the possibility of mounting 76 rockets, or more miniguns, or more cannon. 
This thing was basically a small battleship in the sky. For transport, there was the Sikorsky Flying Crane, capable of carrying 20,000 pounds, or the Boeing Vertol Chinook, able to bring a whole 25-man platoon to the battle. And most famous of all was the ubiquitous Bell UH-1D Iroquois Huey. These proved the most dynamic, sturdy, and capable of all the helicopters in Vietnam, moving at 130 miles per hour armed with four 7.62mm machine guns and 38 rockets, the Huey could act as its own fire support while landing a squad of six to eight men in its operational range of 250 miles. A truly impressive and iconic machine of war. I don't know if there is any vehicle that merely upon hearing it conjures such vivid images of a particular war. Maybe, maybe, for me, the Katusha rockets on the Eastern Front, but that's about all I can think of. Ply May was under heavy assault by the 32nd and 33rd NVA regiments until October 25th. There were a few dicey moments, which might make a great short episode at some point, but suffice it to say the NVA forces came close to winning the day. Only the intervention of the U.S. Air Force blew them off their spot and forced a withdrawal. The NVA forces limped back to the Cambodian border, hoping to lick their wounds and recover, but the pursuit was hot. The 1st Cavalry Division acted like its horse-riding forebearers. Once the enemy began to retreat, they swooped in and did their best to create havoc and disperse and kill the enemy. General Westmoreland was impressed and wanted to see more. He decided to, quote, give General Kinnard his head, end quote, allowing the 1st Cavalry to change roles from a reactive force to an aggressor. For the next couple of weeks, the 1st Cavalry mounted a series of recon missions in their light scout copters aimed mainly at harassing the NVA and tracking them. They initially found little to attack as they assumed the enemy had retreated in a northwest direction. Radio intercepts between the NVA HQ B3 and Chinese advisors in Cambodia made it clear that the 1st Cavalry was aiming in the wrong direction. Major General Kinnard, one of the masterminds behind the air cavalry concept, realized in late October that the enemy was about to slink away beaten, but not broken. He ordered Colonel Tim Brown of the 1st Cavalry Division to reach west towards the Chupong Masif, Iadrang River Valley. Only 25 to 30 miles west of Ply May, the area straddles the Cambodian-Vietnamese border. Coincidentally, NVA General Mann was in the process of reorganizing and training his men for a renewed assault on Ply May in the exact area Colonel Brown had ordered his recon copters to search. The stage was set. The first official encounter between U.S. and North Vietnamese regular forces, the U.S. 1st Cavalry Division and the NVA B-3, was about to begin. General Mann welcomed the fight with the Americans for two reasons. First, he knew that killing as many U.S. troops as possible was always a net positive. A straight-up attrition war favored the North Vietnamese. They had plenty of bodies to throw at the American guns and no critical governing body or media to answer back home. The other reason was it would provide NVA planners an invaluable case study on fighting the Americans. He said, quote, 
we wanted to lure the tiger out of the mountain. We would attack the ARVN, but we would be ready to fight the Americans. Headquarters decided we had to prepare very carefully to fight the Americans. Our problem was that we had never fought Americans before, and we had no experience fighting them. We wanted to draw American units into contact for the purposes of learning how to fight them. We wanted any American combat troops. We didn't care which ones." End quote. The U.S. command also welcomed the first fight with the regular North Vietnamese Army. As Lieutenant Colonel Moore put it, he and his men, quote, had come looking for trouble. We found all we wanted and more, end quote. Their view of the situation was slightly different, but still attrition-based. U.S. command figured that they were essentially costly versions of the Orkin men. Where a communist infestation popped up, they would be there to exterminate it. But they had to get to grips with the enemy before using all their expensive tech and toys. One U.S. account from 1967 boiled it down, saying, quote, Regardless of the risks involved in attacking the enemy on terrain of his own choosing, the rare opportunity to catch the North Vietnamese in any concentration of forces could not be passed up. End quote. From this mentality, the, quote, search and destroy mission was born with its modus operandi of, quote, find, fix, destroy, baked in. Rather than looking to break the enemy's will to fight, U.S. leadership was looking to eradicate the enemy in the field and hoped, given enough doses of American firepower, at some unarticulated point, the NVA would just stop. Of course... We know they did not. On November 13th, Colonel Brown gave Lieutenant Colonel Harold Hal Moore of the 1st 7th Cavalry the green light to engage the enemy on the 14th in the Iodrang Valley. The order was to seek and destroy the enemy in the Chupong Masif area through the 15th of November. Moore was given 16 copters to get him and his men in and keep them supplied and fighting, along with a bunch of Hilo gunships and Air Force units in fire support roles. Five and a half miles away to the east at LZ Falcon, two batteries of the 1st Battalion, 21st Artillery would be on standby. Moore was a steadfast and dedicated officer. His men looked up to him, and most importantly, they trusted him, and with good reason. Moore was conscious of his unit's infamous history and wanted to take every precaution that he could to ensure his men, unlike Custer's, were not slaughtered by swirling enemy hordes. While planning his attack, Moore decided he A, wanted to be the first to land, and B, he wanted the LZ to be big enough to hold his entire battalion. The first decision was made so that he could abort the mission immediately upon landing if he decided to do so. The second was made with the understanding that the enemy would be close and its number was unknown. He wanted a space large enough to land as many men on each trip as possible, allowing him to concentrate his firepower quickly while also having room to maneuver and deploy his platoons as needed. Both decisions proved extremely wise. Moore settled on a place that would be called LZ X-Ray. He debriefed his officers. They were to land, set up the LZ, then seek out and engage the enemy. 
It was believed that there were two NVA units to the north and west of the landing zone, or LZ, and one of unknown size to the southwest, as well as it seemed there was possibly a command base in the area. A fierce but short 20-minute artillery bombardment of the landing zone started on the morning of the 14th. Then at 10.40, 16 Huey choppers came in at treetop level with their five-man, not the normal eight-man team, uh, loads. They unloaded, and the landings went fairly smooth as Moore and his men and the rest of B Company rushed off the helicopters and fanned out into the clearing, firing as they went, more as a precaution than at any actual targets. The landing zone was littered with tree stumps from the bombardment and thickly layered in the tall, dense elephant grass that could hide a man from sight, but not from bullets. Moore decided on a cluster of anthills for his command post, and these reddish-brown anthills, uh, I've also read they might be termite hills, I'm not sure which is which, but they're not the little sand mounds in the cracks of your driveway. These things are 6 to 12 feet tall in some cases and 4 to 8 feet wide at their base. The anthills also provided decent cover because in some cases they were as hard as cement. Moore and his men would find some anthills had NVA soldiers hidden inside them. The only way they could effectively destroy them was with anti-tank or artillery rounds. The anthills Moore set up amongst were well-placed at about the center of the landing zone, which gave him a good feel for the battlefield and, in the coming hours, helped him get a feel for the flow of events. A short time after landing, B Company secured the LZ, and 1st Platoon pulled an unarmed NVA deserter from the tall grass around 11.20. The man confirmed the MACV suspicion that this whole area was a central communist staging post and training base with three North Vietnamese regular battalions. And Hal Moore and the 1st 7th had just landed in their front yard. A Company and the rest of B Company started arriving at about the same time. Then B Company, now fully intact, set out on patrol along a dry creek bed that formed the LZ's northwesternmost edge. They were moving in textbook formation, first platoon on the left, second on the right, and third in reserve to the rear. The men of B Company's three platoons began taking fire. The first platoon and the second platoon formed up in line abreast and advanced, but as they moved further and further west of the creek bed, Lieutenant Devney's 1st Platoon was separated from Lieutenant Herrick's 2nd Platoon. Devney's men began getting squeezed on both flanks, taking heavy fire and casualties. 1st Platoon was pinned, and at the same time, Lieutenant Herrick and 2nd Platoon on the right started taking fire from their right flank, and they aggressively pursued their attackers. The chase pulled him and his men out of reach of both 1st Platoon and 3rd Platoon in reserve. They soon found themselves over a 100 yards away from help. Herrick and 2nd Platoon entered a small clearing, and almost immediately, a vicious gunfight erupted. As his men shredded the enemy in front, Herrick realized the enemy was streaming past both his flanks. Soon, the little clearing was surrounded. Herrick radioed his CEO, Captain Heron, who ordered him to fall back and link up with 1st Platoon. Herrick knew the enemy was too strong for his men to effect a breakout, so he ordered a defensive perimeter set. 
Heron and 3rd Platoon tried to force their way through to 2nd Platoon, but it became quickly apparent that they were dealing with a large body of well-trained enemy. Within a half an hour, the 2nd Platoon was in a fight to survive, as five men had been killed and the NVA continued to press home attacks from all directions. Lieutenant Herrick was among the men wounded and soon to die, but before he bled out, he transferred command, had his signal book destroyed, and ordered his replacement to call in close artillery support. Sergeant Palmer was supposed to take control, but both he and his second, Sergeant Robert Stokes, was killed. That left Sergeant Ernie Savage to organize and lead a desperate defense until more could get a relief force together. The situation was dire, as Savage and his, his surviving unit shortened their perimeter lines as best they could, stockpiled ammo and weapons, and waited. Specialist Galen Bungham, 2nd Platoon B Company, said, quote, We gathered up all the full magazines we could find and stacked them up in front of us. There was no way we could dig a foxhole. The handle was blown off my entrenching tool, and one of my canteens had a hole blown through it. The fire was so heavy that if you tried to raise up to dig, you were dead. There was death and destruction all around. End quote. Now, stranded a couple of football fields away from safety, all the men of 2nd Platoon could do is stare into the thick elephant grass and hope nothing came out of it. Back at his CP, or command post, Moore monitored the B Company situation closely and tried to help by calling in air and artillery strikes. With A Company fully landed and ready, Moore sent them to attempt a rescue. As A Company crossed another of the dry creek beds crisscrossing the region, they also came under substantial attack. Forced to halt and fend off the NVA assault, A Company was delayed and B Company's lost platoon was going to have to wait for salvation. With A and B Company engaged, Moore was in a tight spot. If an attack on the LZ came from the south or east, he was likely to have a repeat of Little Bighorn on his hands. Worse still, with Mortar Round slamming into the LZ all around his CP, Moore was forced to call off the helicopters with only three full companies and part of a fourth on the ground. By 1445, the action was red hot at the LZ, as Colonel Brown saw firsthand. He intended to land at LZ X-Ray to take control, but was waved off by Moore, who feared the enemy fire would take out anything that touched down. Brown ordered the 27th Battalion and the 25th Battalion to make their way to X-Ray ASAP. These reinforcements would land some miles outside X-Ray and then hoof it overland to the fight, meaning they wouldn't be there anytime soon. This was not great news for Moore, as the perimeter defense was almost broken several times in the late afternoon. Only the continuous wall of lead put up by M-16s and M-60s and Moore's constant calling in of airstrikes, rocket strikes, and close artillery support kept the LZ from falling. The continual pounding from on high began to take a toll on the unseen NVA attacking the LZ. The fighting slackened, and by 1520, the rest of the 1st 7th was able to land. With his full battalion complement on the ground, including his heavy weapons and recce platoons, Moore organized companies C and D, skillfully dispersing them along the perimeter, 
freeing up the remains of companies B and A to try once again to mount an effective rescue of the lost platoon. At 1620, after prepping the ground with artillery fire, the American infantry pressed forward into the dense grass, blasting away at anything that moved. The fighting was vicious as both sides repeatedly bumped into each other. Short, bloody little fights, sometimes hand-to-hand, -hand, knife to knife, that saw only one man, sometimes none, walk away. A young Lieutenant Marm of 2nd Platoon A Company became a legend in the fighting when an entrenched NVA machine gun position halted the American advance. Marm ordered one of his men to hit the place with an M72 round, a law, a light anti-tank round. The weapon misfired, so Marm grabbed the small bazooka-like tube and reloaded it and successfully fired it at the NVA. Then he ordered his men forward to follow up with grenades. The men misunderstood and threw their grenades from where they were, doing no damage. So Marm led through example. He sprinted across the field in front of the enemy gun position, charged up the small rise all while taking heavy fire, and chucked his grenades into the trench. As the surviving NVA stumbled out of their trench, Marm killed them, clearing the machine gun nest and the way forward. Lieutenant Marm is believed to have killed between 12 and 18 enemies. Marm was badly wounded. He was shot in the face, the lower jaw. But he survived, and a year after recovering, he was awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions. The Vietnamese were testing out a theory, the idea of hugging the enemy or grabbing them by the belt. These close, intimate little battles and fights in the tall grass were the kind of fighting that the Vietnamese were testing out and seeing how it worked on the Americans. And the tactic was working. The effort to save the lost platoon was called off after moving only about 150 yards. And those are World War I type results. Both sides took the coming of night to lick their many wounds. By 1700, the 27th Battalion's B Company had landed at X-Ray, giving more much-needed men and supplies. Moore once again found himself playing a cup game, trying to set up the perimeter defenses. The final look of his perimeter had C Company holding the South, D Company, and the newly arrived 27th B Company on the East and Northeast, and the remains of 17th B Company still maintaining the Northwest section, and A Company facing Chupong holding down the Western portion. The whole thing was shaped like an egg, with the pointed end going west and the fat end east. Moore's CP was in the middle, but closer to the pointy end. The butcher's bill for day one of Iadrang was B Company had taken 47 casualties, including one officer, and A Company had taken 34 casualties, including three officers. C Company had four casualties. The NVA never rested, though, and throughout the night, they probed Moore's position for weak spots, Cleverly, though, the word was passed for the M60 gunners in the perimeter line not to return enemy fire in the night. That way, their location would not be known by the enemy when they launched the expected morning attack. General Mann had a battalion of the 66th Regiment use the bright moonlight to stealthily move their way through the forest south of LZ X-Ray, positioning itself to attack from the east the following day. While at X-Ray, the position solidified, 
The Lost Platoon just tried to squeak through the night alive. Sergeant Savage somehow fended off three attacks in the night, one at midnight, one at 3.15, and the final one at 4.30 in the morning, a precursor to the day's fighting. Savage had a small 25-yard perimeter to defend, but he repeatedly called in fire from a helicopter gunship and artillery over and over. In some cases, explosive rounds crashed down only yards from the Americans. Against the odds, Sergeant Savage and his remaining men survived the night with no new casualties. Rescue, though, was still hours away. At dawn on the 15th, it became clear to Moore and his men that the enemy had maneuvered around the LZ in the night and that they intended to end the battle one way or, or the other. An eerie silence preceded the fighting, and then all hell broke loose. Hundreds of PAVN soldiers lay down a withering fire so heavy that the entire LZ was getting crisscrossed by small arms fire and hit by mortars. According to the war correspondent and co-author of the book, We Were Soldiers Once and Young, Joe Galloway, the rounds went whistling and zipping by in every direction at about knee high. Galloway threw himself to the ground as the fire intensified and the pressure on the LZ built to a crescendo. Laying on his stomach, pressing himself as deep into the earth as possible, Galloway suddenly felt a thud in his side. I assume he must have for a second thought he was hit, but luckily it was no such thing. Standing above him in the early morning sun was Sergeant Major Basil L. Plumley, A veteran of World War II and Korea, Plumley had jumped into Sicily, Normandy, Holland, and had seen fighting in Korea. Galloway recalled Plumley saying to him, quote, You can't take no pictures laying down there on the ground, Sonny. I thought to myself, he's right. I also thought fleetingly that we might all die here in this place. And if I am going to die, I would just as soon take mine standing up beside a man like this. Like a fool, I got up. I followed the sergeant major over to the makeshift aid station where Doc Carrera and Sergeant Tommy Keaton were tending the wounded. Plumley hollered at them, Gentlemen, prepare to defend yourself, as he pulled out his forty-five pistol and jacked a round into the chamber. End quote. Plumley probably sensed with his well-honed soldier's brain that the final push was on its way. The NVA surged, Dirty white pith helmets with twigs and leaves bouncing on their heads, frontally assaulting C Company and the American line almost buckled. Under the tireless fire from C Company's machine guns, the perimeter was maintained even after losing three of five officers in the first five minutes of the assault. Still, it was a close-run thing, and small groups and individual NVA soldiers made their way through. These infiltrators created localized chaos, bayonet charging and grenade lobbing their way in and out of the American perimeter, but never amounting to any kind of actual tactical swing. One M60 gunner named Willard Parrish earned a silver star by holding off a massive wave of attack of the NVA. He blasted away with his machine gun until out of ammo, and then with the enemy less than 20 yards from his position, he pulled out his 45 sidearm and continued firing from his foxhole. The attack petered out, and later the bodies in front of Parrish's position were counted at more than 100. After the action, Lieutenant Rick Rescorla, who we will talk about later, recalled the hellish scene. He said, quote, 
There were Americans and PAVN bodies everywhere. There were several dead PAVN around one platoon command post. One dead trooper was locked in contact with a dead PAVN, hands around the enemy's throat. There were two troopers, one black, one Hispanic, linked tight together. It looked like they had died trying to help each other, end quote. Still, the PAVN infantry came on, and the buckling U.S. lines now began to snap in places, and Colonel Moore made the tough but correct decision to call in a broken arrow. This was a code word that was understood by the U.S. Air Force in the area to mean that an American combat unit was in imminent danger of being overrun. Moore had his men mark the perimeter with colored smoke and then hunker down, all the while keeping up their fire. The forest around X-Ray exploded in smoke and flames. Artillery and air support, planes stacked at 1,000-foot intervals from 7,000 to 35,000 feet high, rained down on the exposed NVA. In some cases, on the Americans as well. Galloway witnessed one incredibly sad case of friendly fire. Two F-100 Super Sabres flew in over the LZ, thinking they were lined up on their target, ready to drop their napalm load. Napalm, as many of you know, is like modern Greek fire. It's a jelly-like substance that, when ignited, continues to burn on anything it touches until the fuel source expires. It's terrible, nasty stuff. The Sabres intended it for the NVA, but... At the last moment, they were warned off and realized that they were in the wrong spot. It was too late. One of the Sabres had already dropped its load. The canisters were launched into the LZ and bounced around, and one exploded, spreading their its hellish mixture all over, including onto several U.S. soldiers. One of these poor souls was Private First Class Jimmy Nakayama, who Galloway reported had become a father that very same week. The majority of the American ordnance, though, found the right targets, and soon the NVA attacks began to slack. According to machine gunner Bill Beck, quote, without the artillery and air support, we would have been overrun. All of the men agreed on that. The planes and artillery also did most of the killing, end quote. As the attack wound down, reinforcements started arriving on the ground and in choppers, giving Moore's men much-needed rest. Two pilots in particular played crucial roles in evac and supply, braving the hottest of the fighting to fly in and out of X-ray. Much of the time, the fire was so intense that these choppers didn't even have the ability to land. They just did the flying equivalent of a tuck-and-roll. Pilots Bruce Snakeshit Crandall and Ed Too Tall to Fly Freeman each earned a Medal of Honor for fearlessly keeping LZ X-Ray's lifeline open for the surrounded men on the ground. And finally, by, five, by 1530, the lost platoon was saved. The rescuing force crept up without encountering any NVA. They came upon the tatters of the second platoon, of the 29 men that landed at X-Ray the day before, nine were killed in action and 13 were wounded. Sergeant Savage remembered of the harrowing 28-hour ordeal, quote, It seemed like they didn't care how many of them were killed. Some of them were stumbling, walking right into us. Some had their guns slung and were charging barehanded. I didn't run out of ammo, had about 30 magazines in my pack. 
and no problems with the M16. An hour before dark, three men walked up on the perimeter. I killed all three of them 15 feet away, end quote. That night at 1600, maybe the most powerful weapon in the American arsenal outside of the nuclear weapons was used for the first time in a tactical operation. B-52 bombers carpeted the area around X-ray. The NVA forces had to pull away and disperse into the jungle. In the night, Moore received word to head back to Saigon ASAP for a debriefing with General Westmoreland. He refused, insisting he would only leave when all his men were brought off. Through the rest of the night and into the dusk, small probing attacks were mounted, and over and over the Americans, now in their stride, lit the bush up with fire. Each small attack was destroyed in turn. Then, at 6.55 in the morning, on the 16th, Moore, sensing another sunrise onslaught, ordered what he termed a mad minute. This was basically a wild flurry of punches with all of the men firing on full automatic at anything that might be an enemy position. The tactic worked and it drew out the enemy positions to be isolated and hunted down. By 10.30 in the morning, November 16th, almost a full 48 hours after they had first touched down at LZX Ray, the 1st 7th Cavalry Battalion marched a short distance from X-Ray to a nearby extraction point and was airlifted out on K. For Moore, Plumley, Galloway, Crandall, Freeman, Savage, and Marm, and all the rest, the Battle of Iodrang had ended. In what was some of the most intense combat since the end of the Second World War, Moore lost 79 men killed in action and 121 wounded in action. The North Vietnamese lost between 600 and 1,000 dead and the wounded probably was somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000. Once Moore and his men left LZ X-Ray, it was held by 2-5 under Lieutenant Colonel Tully and the 2-7 under Lieutenant Colonel McDade. They consolidated and secured the position, and on the morning of the 17th, each battalion headed out for their respective extractions. Tully's men headed for LZ Columbus and McDade's for LZ Albany. While they marched out, each in a column with artillery support covering their flanks, LZ X-Ray was pounded by B-52s, destroying the ground that just hours before Americans had fought and died to secure. The land itself held no military significance. It was merely the place where the enemy showed itself long enough to be killed. This would repeatedly happen in Vietnam. Take ground, die holding it, and then leave it, oftentimes destroying it as you leave. Eventually, both the soldiers on the ground and the people back home began to question the intelligence of such a seemingly wasteful strategy. While X-Ray went up in flames, Tully and his men made it to their LZ and were extracted without issue. McDade was less fortunate. His 500-foot-long column had another mile further to go, and when they reached LZ Albany, he gave his soldiers the opportunity to take five, sit, have a smoke, take a piss. Two PAVN scouts were captured and a field interrogation was conducted. While the enlisted men caught their breath, McDade called a quick council of war with his officers and NCOs. 
They all huddled together at the head of the strung-out column of weary, tired, sweaty men. Unknown to the Americans, the 8th Battalion of the 66th PAVN Regiment had stalked them and was hiding just out of sight in the brush and tall grass. At 1320, the PAVN, who had been reservists in the fight for X-ray, so were very fresh, conducted a masterful ambush. They sliced through the long, thin line of the 2-7 Air Cavalry. Machine guns, rifle fire, and other small arms and grenades made quick work of the unprepared, unawares infantrymen. Similar to the last episode of Cauldron, where we talked about Fort William Henry, the column leaders were up front at the time of the attack, so there was chaos all along the line from the moment the firing began. Command and control was totally gone, and the fighting degenerated into small bands of men trying to stay alive. The fighting was so vicious and close up, most men found themselves face to face with their killers or their victims. This was again by design, quote, I gave my orders to the battalion, said the 66th commander, Lieutenant Nguyen Huan, recalling years after the event, he said, quote, move inside the column, grab the Americans by the belt, and thus avoid casualties from the artillery and the air, end quote. 400 men started the trek to LZ Albany. By the time the fighting ended, the unit was extracted with 121 wounded and a whopping 151 killed. This was one of the worst defeats of the entire Vietnam War. It left American war planners with a very confused data from the Aya Drang experience. And of course, as we know, they drew all the wrong conclusions. Both sides believed that they had won. Maybe not a great victory, but a victory nonetheless. For the first time, the U.S. took the true measure of its foe and found him clever, dedicated, and utterly without fear. Quote, The enemy were aggressive and they came off the mountain in large groups. They were well camouflaged and took excellent advantage of cover and concealment. Even after being hit several times in the chest with M16 fire, many continued firing, moving for several more steps, remembered Colonel Moore. An enemy like that must have struck fear into the heart of the young Americans tasked with stopping them, but stop them they did. Added to the otherworldly zeal and fervor of the PAVN attacks were the unique ways the Vietnamese found to conceal and kill. Often, Moore remembered his men being forced to clear spider holes and traps along the perimeter of X-ray. The NVA would be dug into small spider holes and then sit and wait for American infantry to pass. Then they would swing up the lid of their hiding hole and begin firing. The shock and surprise were often complete, and the PAVN soldier was usually on a suicide mission. Still, the takeaway was that with superior firepower and technology, the U.S. military could, would, and should prevail. The enemy was incapable of matching the capabilities of the U.S. in Vietnam, and so long as they could be brought to battle, they could be beaten. General Westmoreland summed up the lessons of Iadrang thusly, quote, The ability of the Americans to meet and defeat the best troops the enemy could put on the field of battle was demonstrated beyond any possible doubt 
as was the validity of the Army's air mobile concept, end quote. Hanoi now recognized the value of ambushes and guerrilla tactics, even against well-armed, well-supplied, organized U.S. troops. Their men fought well, and most importantly now, had experience and confidence against America's elite infantry. The NVA realized that the fight before them would be long and extremely deadly, but if they could weather the American-led storm, Vietnam would be united and communist. That being said, they didn't want to commit national suicide with their strategy by continually meeting the Americans in the field. The Politburo in Hanoi decided to revert back to General Giap's unconventional operations. Westmoreland understood Giap's design, even if he couldn't do anything about it, and he described it exactly by saying, quote, From the first, the primary emphasis of the North Vietnamese focused on the central highlands and the central coastal provinces, with the basic end of drawing American units into remote areas and thereby facilitating control of the population in the lowlands. End quote. The plan from 1966 to 67 was to commit to small unit action, ambush, harass, hit and run, assassination, a war of terror and frustration for the mighty Americans and their sidelined allies in Saigon. The much vaunted kill ratio lauded by LBJ and Westmoreland and touted, touted by MACV was illusory. Yes, the Americans killed more PAVN, but it never meant anything because the NVA never put a cap on how many lives they were willing to lose. Professor Dominic Tierney puts it best, saying Vietnam was, quote, a limited war for us and total war for them. We have more power, they have more willpower, end quote. Ayadrang is a story full of heroes, and I know that I, I missed a lot of stories and a lot of individuals and a lot of events, but there's only so much I can tell in one hour. However, I would be remiss if I didn't tell the story of one particular soldier, Rick Rescorla, the one that... Uh, Hal Moore called, quote, the best platoon leader I ever saw, end quote. And his men called him Hardcore or the Cornish Hawk. Now, you have to be a particular kind of badass for your men in the air mobile units to uh, refer to you as Hardcore. Especially if you've got a guy like Sergeant Major Plumley amongst your, uh, your group there. So fighting in Vietnam, Rescorla earned himself the silver and bronze stars for his actions and a purple heart for being wounded, and he retired from the armed services in 1990, having attained the rank of colonel. Hired on as chief of security for Morgan Stanley in the World Trade Center buildings, Rescorla recognized the juicy target that the symbols of capitalism made for America's enemies. He regularly warned of potential attacks, and to the annoyance of many a superior at Morgan Stanley and probably lots of secretaries, he insisted on running evacuation drills regularly and was always ready for the possibility of attack. On 9-11, even as the PA system urged employees to return to their desks, 
Rescorla disregarded the messages and herded the people into the stairwells. With his bullhorn and singing voice, he often sang Cornish tunes to calm not just his soldiers, but in this instance, strangers who he was trying to save. Using his cell, Rescorla called his wife, saying, This gets me every time. He said, quote, Stop crying. I have to get these people out safely. If something should happen to me, I want you to know I've never been happier. You made my life. End quote. Having, safe, having successfully saved more than 2,500 people, this true hero ran back into the building to try and bring more people out. Like more before him, Rescorla refused to leave anyone behind. His last known words were, quote, As soon as I make sure everyone else is out. At 9.59, the cell tower collapsed as Rescorla was last seen climbing up to the 10th floor. His body was never found. All right, that is the Battle of Iadrang. I apologize for my emotion at the end there. That story just, for some reason, that particularly gets to me. But that, again, is the episode on Iadrang and the tale of Hal Moore and his men. Um, I encourage you to check out the, uh, the book uh, written by Hal Moore and Joe Galloway, We Were Soldiers Once and Young. It is the definitive account of the Battle of Iadrang. There's a great line, um, there's a great quote by uh, Hal Moore. He was telling Joe Galloway, he said something very specific. I'm going to pull it up because I don't want to butcher it. But he said to him, um, and by the way, Joe Galloway was a hero in his own right. Uh, he was a war correspondent, did four tours in country in Vietnam. He did, in uh, one tour was 16 months in 1965. He's one of a very few civilians to be awarded the Bronze Star for Valor because he rescued a badly wounded soldier under fire in a napalm incident. Um, he went on to cover the Gulf War in the uh, 1990s. He covered the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War in the 2000s. And again, he co-authored uh, We Were Soldiers Once and Young. He was given a mission by um, Colonel Moore, who ended his career as a general but Hal Moore charged Galloway with the solemn oath saying, quote, Go tell the American people what my troopers did here. Go tell them how my troopers died, end quote. And I think Galloway did a hell of a job. Um, we Were Soldiers Once and Young is a fantastic book. Um, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with the movie. Also a very entertaining movie, very good movie. I think there are some parts that... Probably everybody that uh, saw it who was at the battle would have had issues with, but that's going to be any movie. Um, oddly, Rick Rescorla, the, the man I was just talking about, refused to see it um, because he was afraid that they weren't going to tell the, the story the way it was supposed to be in terms of all the heroes he considered were the men that were left behind. Um, but yeah, so that's uh, the We Were Soldiers, Once and Young, fantastic book. Check out the uh, YouTube videos um, on Iadrang. Obviously, there's the Ken Burns documentary. There's a couple of other good 
Vietnam documentaries. There's one particular to Aya Drang with Hal Moore's son takes a number of uh, surviving veterans over to Vietnam and they, they walk around and visit various sites, the battlefield, cemeteries. Uh, at one point, um, they interview the American soldiers in a North Vietnamese soldiers cemetery and some of their remarks are just shocking and and um, really not shocking in a bad way shockingly compassionate and uh, thoughtful and heartfelt um, so it's definitely worth checking out uh, thanks again for listening I really really appreciate you guys and your support if you get the chance obviously check out the social media stuff again Instagram Twitter Facebook all that uh, as always, please rate, review, and subscribe. And next up, we are heading back to the American Civil War to Tennessee in a meeting between U.S. Grant and Braxton Bragg featuring one of my favorite generals, George Henry Thomas. All right, we'll talk to you guys next time.